You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're on 3CR, and a big thank you to Black Noise Radio for another great show. And welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism, and conversations with people working to create change and address some of the big issues affecting our lives. I'm Judith Peppard, and I want to begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of this land. I also pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. Today, on Listening Notes, you're going to hear how young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds are experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic. Young people were the providers of information to their families about the virus. And when school went to remote learning, what we found is that young people then became carers of their younger siblings, brothers and sisters. That's Jen Couch from ACU. She'll tell us about the research that she and the Migrant Youth Advocacy Network have undertaken and what they found. That's coming up later in the show. But first up, all our good intentions to avoid using plastic and some speculation about what's happened to them during COVID-19. Jo Lindsay is a professor of sociology at Monash University. She and her colleagues conducted research for the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. I think that covers just about everything. And uh, they did that last year to find out about our attitudes to avoiding plastic. And of course, the the research was done in the lead up to Victoria banning single-use plastic bags in November last year. I began by asking what she found out about us, how we were thinking about plastic just a year ago. And then we speculate a bit about what's happened since COVID. 74% were avoiding using single-use plastic bags. 72% were saying no to straws. 57% were avoiding using uh, disposable coffee cups, so either drinking in or bringing uh, keep cups most of the time. Uh, 53% were avoiding using takeaway containers or taking their own containers or, or eating in. That's over 50%, really, for just about everything that you looked at. So that must have been hopeful. Absolutely. And I think it really does give us hope that we can return to that. And people's intentions for each of those things were actually higher. So people said that they intended in the future to avoid it even more than what they were in their own in their own behaviour. So what would happen if you were doing that research now? It's difficult to know exactly because we don't have hard data, but we do know anecdotally that a lot of cafes have stopped allowing you to use keep cups, that the supermarkets are reverted to giving plastic bags when they do home deliveries. Disposable coffee cups is one of the major negatives, I think, to come out of this. Even though there's no evidence that um, takeaway cups 
are more hygienic or um, would have better outcomes for people. If you use detergent on your keep cup or on your disposable bag, they're just as safe. The other thing that I found interesting in your paper was that single-use plastics or plastics are the places where COVID-19 stays the longest. It's not my area of research, but yes, apparently on plastic, the virus is more likely to last than um, on other hard surfaces. So perhaps another reason why we should bring our own. Yes, for sure. One of the interesting things in talking about single-use plastics, particularly the coffee cup, people don't realise that coffee cups can't be recycled. The ones that look like cardboard make you feel as though they can just go in with the cardboard waste or sometimes they even say compostable but in fact there are no disposable cups that can be recycled in Australia. They all have this fine bit of plastic um, so they don't leak and that becomes a kind of biohazard. So I think people want to do the right thing but don't realise that it is quite negative to, to have that takeaway coffee cup. You do point out in your paper that some single use is necessary during the pandemic. I think when you're talking about um, PPE, protective equipment, it's inevitable these things have to be single use and then thrown away. But within our households, there is no rationale really for using plastic cutlery or these kinds of throwaway items. Can you say a little bit more about what we can do in the household? Thinking about alternatives that have been around and are gaining traction really. So avoiding using plastic wrap, using beeswax wraps instead so they're better absolutely so things that you can reuse but also you know we're we're shopping in markets and to take our own small bags so there are lots of options that are were becoming popular and uh, I think we kind of need to encourage people that yes this can be normal yes we can continue on this path there's no need to throw all of the gains away what were the things that motivated people to actually not use the plastics? What did you find were the biggest motivators? Social comparison was a very important element. And so if people felt that everyone else was doing that and that it was a kind of normal practice, then they were much more likely to engage in that activity. We have absolutely passed or had passed that tipping point with um, reusable bags and straws, but there's kind of a bit more to go with these other items. But also whether people felt confident to ask they've done studies that if you have to ask for a bag or ask for a cup then people tend to think all right that's not normal I'll I'll bring my own that's what's expected here so those kinds of things can absolutely make a difference and also whether people feel confident that they can do it and it's not going to cost them too much more money to bring their own Given your own research interests in the transition to the low-waste city and to the water-sensitive city, how are you feeling about the possibilities for the future given the COVID-19 coronavirus epidemic? I think people were very, are very concerned about the environment and want to make a positive contribution to our environmental future. But there is still that kind of gap between how they'd like to be and how they actually are. So their intentions were always higher and how they wanted to act was for the most part higher. It's been a huge disruption to our lives on so many levels. I still really hope that we can 
come back to thinking about a different kind of future that people have really discovered you know, a whole lot of home production during the pandemic, uh, gardening and making bread and all of those activities and people have discovered their local spaces as well uh, going into parks so all of those things around having nice natural environments around having cities that are nurturing spaces i'm really hopeful that the reflections that we've done during this time might have some kind of positive outcomes that people are starting to question the overconsumption that we were engaged with and thinking more, I hope, about what's meaningful and important. Joe Lindsay from Monash. With encouragement to keep up the momentum, to avoid using plastic, and also to think about minimising consumption generally. And I know we have had time, a lot of time for thinking. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And you're on 3CR 855 on your dial and streaming live. Great to have you with us this afternoon. And just about the same time that Victoria introduced the ban on plastic bags, there was an announcement from Queensland that they were going to begin a community consultation. And this generated quite a lot of excitement, particularly with the um, the Australian Marine Conservation Society. So when that was announced, I spoke to Shane Kukau. So here's what he told us on Monday breakfast in November last year. We all want clean and healthy oceans that are full of life. We all know that our beaches and our waterways are filling up with things like plastic takeaway containers, straws, bottle caps, and it's our marine life that are suffering. We see birds are feeding plastic to their babies. Half of all seabirds and turtles have plastic in their stomachs, according to stats from CSIRO. Nobody wants to see more whales washing up dead on our beaches with stomachs full of plastic. So... By implementing a ban on single-use plastics, what we're doing is getting it out of the supply chain so that it can stop flowing into our oceans and stop killing animals. What difference can it make close to home in in the immediate shores around Queensland? Three quarters of the rubbish along our coast is plastic and most of it originates at home in Australia. The landfill that, that comes from that city that's nearby. So we need to do this across Australia. It can't just be up to one state or territory. We hear a lot about plastics um, coming out of Southeast Asia as well, and which is <clears throat> much more highly populated. What difference can Australia make? A huge difference, yeah. Plastic is all of our responsibility. It's not just uh, nations overseas that are um, polluting with plastic, but it's us here at home. Uh, you know, Australians, by and large, we're doing the right thing, but our recycling systems have buckled under the load of plastic that companies are pumping out. And we used to ship it to other nations to deal with, and now they've stopped taking it. And so we have to deal with it here at home. So with plastic piling up in warehouses and washing into our waterways, that's our plastic that's flowing out there. It's our responsibility to do something about it. And the only real solution is to get them out of our supply chain once and for all. On an individual level, many people are avoiding plastic. I notice when I go to the shops now, more and more people are taking their own bags, fabric of some sort. So people are doing that, but obviously more steps need to be taken from the government. Absolutely. You know, and people, people are quite happy to make the right choice, but sometimes you don't get a choice, do you? You know, you go out to a cafe and someone puts a straw in your drink before you even get to say anything. Or food is served in takeaway plastic containers. We are, by and large, very happy to move to other alternatives. 
And we're seeing a revolution of people who are moving to bringing their own reusable packaging bags, bottles. But at the end of the day, unless we actually stop supplying it in the first place, there's always going to be some of it that continues to flow out into our waterways. I noticed that the Australian Marine Conservation Society is part of the Boomerang Alliance. Tell me a little bit about the Boomerang Alliance. Yep, so the Boomerang Alliance is uh, an alliance of organisations across Australia who are all working together to try and conquer the problem of plastic pollution. So lots of people are doing lots of different things. So obviously this is a problem where we have to do something at the individual level. Um, we need businesses doing the right thing and we need government coming to the table as well. That means that there's a range of action that need to happen from the local, picking up plastic on beaches and participating in cleanups, that kind of thing through to education, through to business change, you know, throughout. So we work particularly at the advocacy level, working with government around how they can change the way that we do things in Australia to, to conquer the problem of plastic pollution. And others work in other areas, so Clean Up Australia, for example, or the Boomerang Alliance with their Plastic Free Places program, working with city councils to get rid of plastics. In many ways, this crisis is, has been well underway for a long time. And the sad truth is, UNESCO stats are showing that over 1 million seabirds, 1 million seabirds and marine animals are killed by plastic every year. That means there's over 3,000 animals being choked, suffocated or entangled every day right now. So we can't afford to wait any longer. We have the solutions. We've just got to get on with it. And if you needed any more motivation, that's Shane Kukau from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. And... uh, He was great. He was really excited to speak with us. He said he hoped it would inspire us to continue with avoiding plastics. And and I did uh, follow up. I checked to see if um, Queensland was pushing ahead with this. And indeed, they are. They're in the middle of their consultation right now. So this is good news. And if you're wanting to keep up with developments on the environment, because there's just always so much, tune into some of the shows here at 3CR. We have Earth Matters, Beyond Zero Emissions and Dirt Radio. Coming up next, Jen Couch, looking at how young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds are experiencing the pandemic. But first of all, we're going to hear from Sampa the Great with Freedom. So don't remind us 
the beginning. We never win it. They want our in this, we just fall. You want my art. What's up, what's up? I'm under charge and overthought. And after that, and now I'm living, trying to give in every melody of ours. What's hot, what's not, what's ours? Sally selling six figures where we meant to. Nah, I'm trying to make a living. Music is a source of all my end and my beginning singing. show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And you're on 3CR, 855 on your dial and streaming live. Jen Couch is a senior lecturer at the Australian Catholic University, and she's worked with and on behalf of young people and communities in the areas of refugee settlement, displacement, homelessness, and capacity building. 
and she's conducted the only longitudinal study that I'm aware of of the experiences of young refugee people in Australia. And I'll put a link to her article on that on the website. But she joined me last week to talk about this latest study that's looking at how the lives of young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds are being affected by COVID-19. And I was surprised at how quickly uh, she was reporting on this study and curious about how the study came about. Here's Jen Couch. I have a long ongoing partnership with the Multicultural Youth Advocacy Network, MIAN. They're an Australia-wide body that looks at advocating at a policy level around the lives of refugee and migrant young people. They're incredibly well connected across the whole of Australia with settlement workers, youth workers, social workers, and of course, young people themselves. It wasn't really until we went into lockdown in Victoria that I started really thinking about this. And I contacted Mayan and they were already running consultations with young people. We decided to write something. We've moved pretty fast on it. Yes, amazing, really. And you must have felt some urgency around it. We needed to get something out there because what we were hearing, we realised, was a really significant policy gap and also a really big information gap. What has happened now, particularly in Victoria, around this outbreak and the discourse around migrant communities and could already see that something like that might happen just because of the lack of community engagement and appropriate ways of communicating with those communities. We had enough information and we were just going to run with it and try and put some stuff out there as soon as we could because otherwise young people were going to get overlooked in this process again. And so you started the research, I guess, in April. And how did you do the research? What did you do? How did you approach it? Mayan set up some consultation groups with young people across Australia. Young refugee leaders came online and talked about their experience of working, living, being in a pandemic and the kind of initiatives that young people were creating and developing. In addition to that, there were sector meetings online and over 300 workers across Australia came into those meetings and they were basically echoing what the young people were saying themselves. So these were workers um, sometimes from refugee communities themselves, but other workers who had strong links and were running programs with and for young people. So right across Australia, we heard these issues were the same for young people, no matter of their location. So what were the backgrounds of the people that were consulted? From the African communities, communities from Myanmar, Afghanistan, Congo, some international students from India. So a really broad range representing all the recent communities who have come into Australia within the last five years. What did you find through your research? Young people have picked up a range of responsibilities in the settlement process, caring for their families, being providers of information and being also providers of financial help for their families. With COVID-19, what we found out was that that experience and the responsibilities were completely magnified. A lot of refugee families, because information wasn't getting to them, they were looking for media from their own countries. That information wasn't always correct, it wasn't always appropriate, and of course that was kind of not really relevant to the Australian context. Young people were the providers of information to their families about the virus, 
And when school went to remote learning, what we found is that young people then became carers of their younger siblings, that the parents had really no idea what was going on with this remote learning. There were huge gaps in the kind of technology available in many refugee households. There wasn't enough devices, there wasn't enough hardware, and young people who were older than their siblings would often take on that educational role. It is taking a toll on mental health and well-being. Young people report feeling kind of overwhelmed with the amount of information that they have to provide to their family, feeling overwhelmed at the amount of media and news, bad news. A few said that this kind of uncertainty, the feeling of being inside, locked inside, they didn't use the words re-traumatised, but it was along those lines, you know, this reminds me of being in my country, not knowing what was going to come next, having to be locked inside with this uncertainty. There's huge issues for these young people in navigating these many, many spaces that they need to be in. And they're often new to Australia themselves, so they're trying to forge their belonging, their place in a new country as well, while taking on all these additional responsibilities. The virus has exacerbated existing inequalities. And it has exacerbated existing inequalities. Now, if you've just joined the show, I'm speaking with Jen Couch about a study she's conducted with Mayan, the Migrant Youth Advocacy Network. And in her paper about the study, Jen refers to the Senate inquiry into the government's response to COVID-19. The inquiry found that multicultural communities had been overlooked and not received adequate information about the virus. I asked her, how could that happen? They absolutely needed more grassroots work. And at the level of not just leadership, but at the level through women's groups, mothers groups, people who would be able to disseminate the information up to their families. And that was completely overlooked. There are many fine young people in this country, refugee young people who are leaders who would be able to help and know and be on advisory groups about how to best get the information to their communities. It was just completely overlooked. And some of the information for us was confusing. So how many people are we we allowed to have in our house? 20? Does that include the family? Doesn't include, you know. So those things are complex. And we just relied too much on this written information going out to cultures which are often orally based, and there was an over-reliance on that, I think. If you look at the Department of Human Services, and I have friends who work in the department and they say there's not many people from the communities in here making the decisions about those communities. So we actually need to start building spaces within our bureaucracy for those communities to be part of that. But also we have advisory groups on all kinds of things. Well, where is an advisory group of young refugee leaders on COVID? So we need to start taking the voices and the initiatives and the the contributions of these young people seriously. And we need to start making sure that they are consulted in the decisions that will affect their communities. Is there anything that people listening can do? Because uh, we've got a pretty activist community at 3CR. Community-based connections with each other. And we need to hold our governments accountable to policy that is created without the proper consultation. I mean, this is not new. Governments do this all the time. This is just one example where 
it's really failed to hit the mark in quite a detrimental way. So we need to support our small multicultural organisations because as I found in my homelessness research, the communities are capable of solving many of these issues, but they really need the resourcing and the information in order to do that. Jen Couch from the Australian Catholic University talking about the study she and Mayanne, the Migrant Youth Advocacy Network, have conducted. And as you'd be aware, 3CR has a strong tradition of connecting with communities, as you'll see by the number of programs in community languages. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free, one of us is chained, none of us are free. Thank you to my guests on Listening Notes today, Joe Lindsay, Shane Kukau, and Jen Couch. And to listen to the podcast or to find the links to the stories we've covered today, just go to Acting Up on the 3CR Grid and get all that information. And do stay tuned to 3CR because coming up next is Diaspora Blues. Catch you next week when I'll be speaking with Maria Tanyag on gender and climate change. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.